bist du hier aller Ehre. Was ist Wundes hier geschehe? Dass ein Magd ein Kind This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. Uh, this morning, we have a special sort of impromptu call-in show. Uh, I'm here today. Uh, I, I forgot this part of the intro that I normally do, but I'm obviously here today with uh, with Dan. With uh, Dan Baltic. But also with Isaac Simpson, who is calling in. Uh, I don't know if he wants me to dox his trip, but he is en route well, uh, I, I won't dox your trip if you don't want me to, but you're, you're in the car and we're going to have a conversation on your piece. Uh, there's going to be a war in Montana, as well as current events in general and how I kind of think your piece uh, ties into current events. But Isaac, welcome to the show. Hi, welcome, Isaac. And yeah, you can, Good to have you back. You can dox me. I'm, I'm driving from St. Louis to Chicago right now. I'm about... 45 minutes outside of Chicago. Awesome. Um, yeah, no, we wanted to sort of, you had a piece uh, on your Substack. There's going to be a war in Montana that went kind of viral. Do you want to just, I guess, to hop right in the conversation, you want to kind of talk about how that piece came to be, what's it about, and maybe get into some of the backlash you got? Yeah, sure. So the piece is called, there's going to be a war in Montana. I really struggled with that title. I struggled with the piece, actually. I was about to publish a very different version of it, and I showed it to my wife, who I always show my work to before I publish it. Um, and she didn't like it, how it was, and I think she had some good points. So I sort of woke up at 6 in the morning the next morning and just wrote nonstop until, like, 3 p.m. that day and just published it. Yeah. Nice. And That's how I, you got to do I, it. I wasn't re- – yeah. I like literally didn't even get up. I think I went to the bathroom one time because uh, I was just like kind of in the zone. And I, the title just came out of me. It was like, that's what I wanted to call it, even from the very beginning when I was sort of conceiving of it. And it was just like, I, I was messing with it. I was trying to tell it other things. And then I was just like, you know what? This is what I want to call it. So that's what I called it. And I published it. And within like, 20 minutes or something, I got a message from Delicious Tacos being like, holy shit, this piece is really good. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, it's, it's going to get a couple thousand views, you know, like my best piece is like the hype dad piece got, you know, maybe five or six thousand. And I was like, okay, it'll be in that category or whatever. And then boom, it just totally exploded. Yeah. And it got put on the front of Revolver News, which got a ton of traffic and it, um, you know, um, was republished in a few newspapers in Western right. states awesome. like Colorado. And, and yeah, and um, so yeah, it was great. It was really awesome. And then most of the feedback was good. Uh, most of the feedback was great. 
but some of the feedback, of course, inevitably was was quite bad. So I think it was controversial. But hey, you know that's, that's yeah. Well, it's obviously got a. I won't. I wouldn't call it clickbait because that's that would be to disparage it. But you know, it's got a title that certainly makes you want to click on it. It's got a uh, provocative title, shall we say? Um, and I, of course, and Dan have we both read the piece, and it is it is very good. I'm not surprised that tacos gave you the shout out because before even getting into the intellectual and political stuff, which I, I do think there's some some fascinating points you make that we'll get into. It is just a really good piece of writing, very descriptive. It, it came out of a, a trip you and your wife had taken to Montana, so it was it's, it's the kind of gonzo journalism that you are that you're basically doing these days. Would you say? Yes, that's exactly right. That's what I want to shift focus over to is based vice. Yeah, and there we go. I think I that, love it. That, that's the stuff that I like to read the most. You know, I just published this four-part sort of treatise on advertising, which I think is nice, and I think it's good to have that out there. But what I like to read is great gonzo journalism, and so that's what I want to write. And yeah. Create. And Matt and I had taken to calling you uh, Gavin McGinnis, uh, McGinnis 2.0. So, uh, yeah. you know, maybe that is a mantle <laughs> well, you aspire a, that's to. A, that's a mix. Maybe that is I mean, not a mantle you aspire to. Right. But but certainly, Gavin, you know, with Vice and everything, so obviously, you know, say what you will about his uh, judiciousness with, with regard to certain decisions he's made. He definitely did encapsulate that, you know, I mean, Vice 1.0. Uh, 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 was was very much you know he was one of the founders of of course and uh, then later you know got got kind of based so I mean yeah you don't I, I don't know if Gavin McGinnis is to be is, clear early Gavin McGinnis yeah. not his uh, later transformations the comparison was to him as a gonzo journalist not as a uh, PV founder <laughs> <laughs> or someone who would fake their own arrest on air, but um, <laughs> or that, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, again, yeah, it is it is a really well written piece. I would recommend it to anyone who's listening if they haven't read it. Um, oh, sorry, what was I going to say? One second, let me pull my notes. Uh, the 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 newspapers that that picked it up were they more so? Obviously, Revolver is a basically right wing news aggregator but the the a lot of the papers that picked it up were just kind of more local newspapers right yeah so it got picked up two places i actually don't remember the name of either of them right now but um what they were both like an idaho local. paper if i recall yeah i think one was idaho one was colorado and they were both like-minded gentlemen who run newspapers in those places who hit me up and they were like, yeah, we got to publish this. Yeah. And uh, awesome. I was like, go for it. Well, one of the things that you said to me, uh, encouraging me to read it, uh, cause I, I kind of missed the initial boat. Cause I, you know, I kind of go in and out of Twitter sometimes uh, was that um, basically that this is kind of a white pill for, for kind of, your general project of trying to create this sort of based gonzo journalism, but kind of for all of us, um, a rising tide raises all ships. Any, any of us trying to kind of delve into this more independent, uh, you know, journalism, podcasting, gonzo or otherwise, uh, this kind of proves that there is an audience out there for it uh, beyond our corner of Twitter. 
Totally. Yeah. And let me just say that I, I don't want to get completely away from seeing things through the lens of propaganda. So I've been in advertising for 10 years. That's always going to be a part of the way that I see things. And the carousel, my podcast and my Substack is still about seeing the world through propaganda. And the Montana piece is about propaganda. It's about this sort of uh, cold war of messaging that you're seeing mm -hmm. inside a place like Bozeman and then outside of there in a place like Three Forks, Montana, which is hot, red, bright, angry Trump country versus gay, rainbow, private <laughs> equity, hazy IPA, spicy rigatoni, you know, live, play, work, hedge fund land. Yeah. And you see yeah. these two opposing forces. The war I'm in part mentioning is a cold one. It's a messaging one. You see the signs and symbols of these two um, opposing groups ramped up to a fever pitch. Yeah. And so the piece is uh, still about propaganda. It's still about the messaging that we see and the music and the advertising and the bumper stickers. It's still about that. And, and that's really how I see the world. So I, I'm not leaving yeah, yeah. that entirely. You know, I, I also run an agency, a small advertising branding agency that tries to hire kind of based guys um, to do work on brands. So, you know, that's still a part of what I stand for and still part of what I'm doing. But I do think that the reason it succeeded is because there is just a massive gaping hole in culture where Vice used to be, where Bourdain used to be. Not that Bourdain was based because he wasn't, but yeah, I know he was mean. fulfilling, you know, he, the, even if without the base part, even if it's not right wing, it's there's still, still this massive gap where, right, where there's nobody yeah. on the ground really telling the story from a subjective point of view. And, and I think that there's just a craving for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Subject I mean, we need like a real objective. Oh, go on, man. Subjectivity in general is kind of one of the things that's been in the crosshairs. I don't even want to call it PC culture or cancel culture. These are overused terms, although very real. One of the things that's in the crosshairs of whatever crackdown has happened over the past 10 years is, is you know, yes, it's a crackdown on a right wing points of view. Absolutely. But it is also an affront and assault on any kind of subjective take because because it is universal so even if even if your subjective take is somewhat leftist tinged it still doesn't quite jive with the kind of corporate universalist approved messaging that you know increasingly uh is you know becoming the only acceptable thing um so so your point is well taken I, you know it's Yes, it's a you know based versus non-based issue, but also it's a you know subjective actually responding to the world uh, versus corporate you know fear you, you know fear mongering like oh my god is this opinion going to get me canceled culture you know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, like I think that there is. Versus... Yeah. No, sorry, Dan. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, I mean, like, honest, it's the same thing as in art, you know, outside of the regime, sanctioned area, what have you, you are free to actually express yourself. And thus, both good art is coming from outside of the, um, you know, uh, the GAE occupied zones, shall we say, 
also i would assume good advertising good yeah. um you know good journalism has to come from outside of uh the new york times newsroom because even though the new york times is technically very good um it's all so compromised ideologically that you can't even you know it's it's very the way i would describe the times is it's very sophisticated, very well executed propaganda, and that's mm. that's and then to an extent that has always been true, but I think that's increasingly true today. And so now, what you need is you need a, a counterbalance to that, and you need a, a, a true counterbalance because the you know the Wall Street Journal is just another version of the New York Times. You need what you are doing, which is Gonzo journalism, going out there and telling the stories as you see them. And uh, one of the things, Isaac, that I thought was interesting here is um, you got a lot of pushback from people <laughs> after publishing this. And um, it's surprising to me because it, I, it seemed like the you know, biggest uh, uh, complaint people had was that um, you were catastrophizing, that, you know, that a civil war is not imminent. Yet, I mean, this is something that everyone talks about. So it, it seemed like a perfectly reasonable gloss on the issue. Yeah, so let me respond in two ways. First of all, I think the first point that you're both making about subjectivity being needed is a really important one. And I think that that is such a peg that we should all be focusing on because you're right that the powers that be are terrified of subjectivity. A great example of this is you see what's happening with homelessness and vagrancy in all the big cities, right? And crime. So it's very obvious in a subjective sense for anyone who lives in any of these cities that there's been a horrible change. Mm -hmm. That neighborhoods have gotten destroyed. There's way more people on the streets. There's way more crime. It's just deteriorating. That's very obvious. I've lived in LA for you know 11 years. It's like night and day from when I got there. It's so much worse. But yeah. what do the experts say? The experts say, oh, it's not actually worse. People from San Francisco say this all the time. They say, oh, the crime hasn't changed. This is all in your head. This is all just, oh, you're just racist. So you're just seeing more black people, <laughs> so therefore there's more crime. You're not actually seeing that the streets are now completely destroyed. You're not seeing that. That's not real. That's how it's always been. It's a city, man. It's a city. Welcome to living in a city. So they're trying to tell us that our subjective eyes do not know the truth. And that who knows the truth is their experts, their numbers. Their data says, uh, you know, the crime is not up. Even though we all know it's very obvious to everybody. And that's why every local election in California is 100% about homelessness now. Even though the experts tell us that it's not actually happening. So yeah, I think yeah. the, the, the point you're making about um, uh, so the need for more speaking about what we're seeing in front of our eyes uh, is necessary. Secondly, let's talk about the Montana piece and the feedback. So or the, the criticism. So the criticism, I think the best lens to see through is this guy named Walter Kern. <laughs> who is in our circle. Yes. He's a famous writer. He wrote, the up in, I guess, the book of Up in the up Air in the that air. turned into a movie. He wrote a book called Bump Sucker. I had no idea who he was before this. But he's got like 100,000 followers. And he came and just attacked me really strongly out of nowhere. 
on Twitter and called me a fraud. I mean, you know, I called him a boomer back to be fair, but, but um, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it, it, he really was very like, very angry about this piece. I was, I was surprised. At, see, he's a I native Montanan. Yeah. I don't know if he's I a native one, true. but he lives there now. Okay. Just, yeah. That, he lives I'm in Montana. So I don't know if he's native or not. Whatever, but. personally, but go on. Sorry. I, I think so too. So his criticism, which he retweeted actually last week, I, I have a tweet here from Michael Tracy, who's another, you know, based in quotes, writer, journalist, who's on supposedly on our side. But what Michael Tracy had to say that Walter Kern retweeted was not a new observation, but the people who are perpetually convinced of a looming civil war just spend way too much time on the line. Go anywhere in America that's remotely normal, and the idea that the population is readying itself for a cataclysmic internal conflict is beyond ridiculous. So this is what this camp of based, moder- I guess, more moderate type people have to say. They, they think that a hot conflict is beyond ridiculous. They love this rhetoric. Beyond absurd. It's beyond. Hmm. So the question is, why do they think this? Why are they saying this? I have no idea why they they don't see this clearly, because 600 miles away to the west from Bozeman, Montana, is Seattle. In Seattle, what, a year ago, not two years ago, a group of dissidents with guns took over part uh, like the most valuable part of downtown for months on end. People died. There was all kinds of violence. Residents were terrified in their homes. That was a war, right? That was certainly a conflict, exactly like what they're saying. So why is it so completely beyond ridiculous to to imagine that 600 miles to the east of there, there would be an equal and opposite reaction from the right? Why is that beyond ridiculous? You know, we have we have all of our media people saying, oh, there was an insurrection in D.C. You know, so that's a war. An insurrection is a war. I like obviously I don't think that that was an insurrection. It was just a bunch of trolls. Right. I, I don't I don't believe that. But still, it's in the very common discourse. It's in the common parlance. So, you know, to respond to this piece with that type of fear based reaction To me, it's telling me that these guys, these sort of like bourgeois-based guys, they're interacting with their sort of service people, you know, like their service workers. And their Mm -hmm. service workers are really nice. And, oh, you know, the the guy in Bozeman who does my yard, he's he's a Trump supporter, but he's really nice. You know, and they're thinking that could never happen. Those people don't hate me. We're all together. This is normal. And they're just not seeing the anger that's there. They're just not listening, you know? And I think because they think that they're one of the good ones or something. But the absurdity of their response to say that something like this is beyond ridiculous, I just don't understand it. Because to me, it seems like it's very obviously we're on the way to that. I'm not saying we're on the way to an organized civil war, obviously. You know, the, the title is, a play on the rhetoric of actually a Washington Post article that's saying there's going to be a civil war. 
Um, and yeah. again, it's gonzo, it's subjective. But but even if it wasn't gonzo and subjective, even if it was me literally saying there is actually going to be a war, right? There's actually going to be a hot, violent, physical yeah. com- conflict in a place like Montana. Even if I was saying that, I don't understand why that would be beyond the pale of imagination. Like, certainly the sides are mad enough at each other. Yeah. You know, if you no. look at it, they hate each other. It just seems like you would need one little thing. And it would bubble over at least into a Chaz Chop type situation. So, that's my response. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, this is something that Matt and I have talked about. And indeed that the culture is talking about. So number one, it's crazy that people got worked up about this article because the same article has been in the Washington Post, has been in the New York Times, has been, you know, so I don't know. I think, um, you know, people just uh, like to start fights, I guess. I I don't know. But beyond that part, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely right that going into the future, as uh, things uh, continue to get more and more um, tense and hostile between the two, uh, essentially two camps in America, uh, yeah, you're going to see more events like the Chaz, more kind of street fighting, more street January warfare, 6th, but more, yeah. yeah, more January 6th type stuff, more riots, more this and that. But I mean, I think it, it would be very um, difficult to imagine an actual civil war in the sense of armies fighting each other because, and Matt and I have discussed this, many people have discussed this, the good old boys have discussed this extensively, how uh, due to geographic um, distribution, the, you know, there's no longer like a, a Mason-Dixon line where, well, you know, you can fight the guys down there and we can fight the guys up there. Rather people are congregated in cities and they are, you know, they are the blue team and the red team are outside of the city. So we're all mixed up amongst each other in this country. So that makes coordination into some sort of, you know, martial, you know, action very difficult. So yeah, no, I don't think there, well, that's one reason there wouldn't be a civil war. Another reason is um, America today is just uh, way, way more precarious, actually, than it was during the Civil War. America today has way many more people. Supply lines are stretched extremely thin and rely upon all these, like, you know, as we've seen with the supply chain disruptions, it, um, you know, the slightest little problem causes like, oh, yeah, you're not going to get your food for three more days. Oh, you're not going to get heat for, you know, whatever amount of time. So, like, we rely upon these kind of super efficient, but once disturbed, extremely inefficient supply lines. And if there were a prolonged actual civil conflict in the continental United States, that would just go to shit immediately. There'd be no supply. Like who the truckers are, the red guys. So they're not going to truck to the cities. It, uh, it's just it's not going to work. So within like a month of uh, any sort of like if there were an actual civil conflict, the cities would be dark. Cities wouldn't have food. People would, you know, they'd be dying. And um, it, uh, though a lot of people would be. <laughs> and uh, the spirit to keep this going, you know, among, you know, presumably any sort of conflict would be 
basically the blues saying we need to impose our values on the reds. And I think what would happen would be the blues who would be suffering massively in the, the cities and on the coasts would say, yeah, we don't fucking care. Stop this shit. <laughs> I need to get food. And um, that's what would happen in my estimation. Plus, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, our electrical grid, as I'm sure you realize, is extremely vulnerable. Um, yeah, all, all someone, as, as Mike Ma has taught us, <laughs> all someone would need to do is, like, find these three power plants that uh, power the East Coast, and uh, there'd be quite a bit of trouble. Mm-hmm. So... A hot war, not going to happen. A, a kind of prolonged civil conflict, conflict um, which is a simmering, but, um, you know, cold, warm, that, that I could see happening. I mean, I think that already is happening to an extent. Uh, yeah. Isaac, I don't know if you have anything to respond to on that, on that note. But I mean, what I would say is striking is I, I, I more or less agree with everything you say, Dan, at the same time, I think, as as it was really highlighted in Isaac's piece, it, it, despite these geographic issues, which are, again, very, I, for the record, don't think there'll be anything that could really be called a civil war that's going to happen. But I do think that the feelings, that the anger is certainly hot enough um, to, you know, perhaps even hotter than it was during the actual civil war in, in many, in many regards. And um I think that we're kind of reaching this breaking point with regard to Trumpism tying in with national events, Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, the dark, the dark Brandon speech, some of these other things we want to talk about, too, <laughs> where uh, it's I'm not I don't want to say it's do or die in a Fed posty way at all, because I don't I, I'm not you know signaling for this, just that th- those are the stakes, um, as uh, to put it in the words of, of Michael Anton, like uh you know there's there's no there's not gonna be a compromise and there's no or maybe there will be but it, you know but but not without you know an extremely sort of ugly without there may eventually be a compromise if someone like ron DeSantis gets in and and and, and maybe things will calm down or something maybe but before that it's going to get a lot uglier is my is my is my general take because yeah there, there's no there, there's no compromising i mean i think within our lifetime i don't know exactly how it will go down but like a trump flag will be regarded the same as a confederate flag right yeah i think um i think you're absolutely right that there's not going to be a traditional you know two armies civil war but there's that type of war doesn't really exist anymore anywhere i mean i guess you know, I mean, Russia, Ukraine is probably the most traditional war we've had in a long time, where there's actually two yeah. armies. But but even that one's kind of dubious. Um, I would say, but no, I, I agree with both of you. I'm not saying that there's going to be two sides and it's going to be the Trumps versus the Bidens. And, you know, that, that that's the war. I'm much more talking about a conflict of some kind that you're saying i mean it's already happening it's trucker convoy it's what happened in the netherlands you know i mean we already see these things happen right and so the bubbles are are happening it's bubbling it's definitely bubbling one thing that i thought was uh interesting about what you said in speaking of bubbles is that there's no mason dixon so i would actually say there is a mason dixon it's just decentralized so we're living in the age of decentralization, right? Right. It's tough for you. There yeah. is a there's a very clear divide that is forming that's really brand new. 
between city and country. There, of course, that yeah. divide has always existed, but that divide used to be pretty like, oh, it's the city mouse and the country mouse. It's those nice country people and those kind of like, you know, oddball city people, and they don't really like each other, but whatever, you know, they kind of have fun. Now, the country people and the city people absolutely hate each other. Like, like <laughs> and so, like, I, I was just coming through uh, rural Missouri. I went to a bar. It did the same pattern as Montana. I went to a bar that I, I do this thing. I just look on my Google Maps and I just put, put in bar and I see whatever's around me. So the bars that I end up going to are places that aren't like, they're kind of out of the way. So I went to this bar that's got, kind of out of the way. I walk in. There's a Patriot Front sticker on the door, right? Wow. Which is like Patriot Dang. Front. I believe it's like known as like straight up white supremacist like group. Yeah. It's, and yeah. Based. And I go in, and I go in, and it's like a bunch of dudes glare at me with straight up like I don't even know what you call the beards that are there's like no mustache, <laughs> it's like really long and gray. It's like the racist beard, you know. Like uh, I I'm pretty chameleony, so I think I was I you know I was fine, but like I went in and had a bush light and just kind of soaked it up. People smoking cigarettes in there. I mean that place is basically a you know that place wasn't Patriot Front ten years ago. You know, like those guys weren't in yeah. there. Like you really do see it. If you go into these country places, at least the right ones, at least the poor ones, the anger there, it's like there now, you know, like they are, no organized. Doubt, no. I don't know how organized they are, but, but they're definitely like, there's a very clear delineation. And then you go 45 minutes away into St. Louis and St. Louis is like, looks like, I don't even know how to describe it. It literally, I stayed in this hotel last night all night long, just yelling loud bass. It's all black on the streets. Like, Oh yeah. I've, I've heard very bad things about St. Louis. And this is like the nice part. Yeah. This is like the nice part of St. Louis. (laughs) Louis has always been like that. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that St. Louis is like now St. Louis is like that because everybody will be like, no, St. Louis has always been, you know, very uh, diverse, but um, (laughs) I think I think it's definitely like the the downtown is just abandoned now, you know. Uh, so yeah. again, that's not like Bozeman where it's like gay Candyland, but it's still um, an example of just a really very sharp divide between yeah. the cities and the countries, and I and the country. And I think that that's where the Mason Dixon is. It just is happening everywhere, and and technology does such a good job of dividing us and such a good job of making us so we can't ever actually get together that we're seeing, um, you know, decentralized armies forming, not armies, but decentralized sort of uh, populations forming. And the answer to that is, of course, using the internet to organize. But these guys can't do that. You know, the, the, the hard extremist people on the right who i'm not saying i support i'm I'm just calling it how i see it by the way again i'm just saying what i see mm-hmm. these guys can't organize because the second they organize they're deplatformed or they're you know some narc infiltrates and they're totally done right i mean anytime the slightest yeah. bit of right-wing organizing goes on it's instantly smashed out because um, just surveillance because they so go to the bank and, and discover you know, they have a zero right. balance. <laughs> exactly. Look at yeah. Look look at a guy like Cody Wilson, right? Cody Wilson. Like, oh wow, uh, my, my money's gone. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, and I, that's what I, they I do. Credit cards. To, uh, 
become more politically normal. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> right. No, what's the list that they have? There's a great Cody Wilson talks about this. You know, he woke up one day and all his credit cards didn't work. Cody Wilson's the guy behind the the, go, the ghost. Yeah, yeah, the three D like, uh, yeah. ghost guy. Yeah, thirty D He was like, I woke up one day and suddenly I was on. There's like a list out there. And when you're on the list, none of your bank accounts work. None of your none of your credit cards work. And he had yeah, to like no, figure I mean, out a way around it. That is a perfect way to come combat this because if you're cut off from the banking system, well, you're you're fucked. Like the best you can do is work under the table. And, you know, get paid off the books. And, like, yeah, you can scrape together a living that way, maybe. And you, you're not going to make a lot of money, though. You're not going to make any money. You're not going to make enough money, like, if you want to own a home, if you want to even have, like, a decent apartment or rent a decent house, have anything approximating a decent life. You need a bank. And if you can't access any bank, if you can't access any credit, you're as good as dead, basically. Yeah, I mean, this is why, America, this is why I um, get kind of blackpilled about this sort of thing, is that I, I think that the, the anger is absolutely there for, for a war-type scenario and for people to want to stand up for themselves. But I, I worry that, you know, anyone who would, who would do that, they kind of have them surrounded on, on all sides. Um, and I really think the project right now is to humiliate Trump and humiliate anyone who voted for him. And that that's, you know, what the ugliness is going to be over these next few years. Again, maybe a best case scenario is is that someone like DeSantis ends up getting in, you know, can, can win, win over some independent voters and, and things sort of calm down. Um, although from a harder right perspective, that would that that would kind of just be placating without in a bigger picture way, more of the same the decline would still kind of continue but at least people you know wouldn't be getting arrested um but i, I kind of see that like that's part of why i'm skeptical of like a real civil war happiness i think people realize that they're that they're cornered and more or less hopeless in the face of the government the banking system the media everything against them because I mean that would also be different. But the, the you know the, the 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 last civil war, there was actually different institutions heading off. In this case, I think it's more of a vulnerable population that is being edged out. I, well, it's certainly not hopeless. I mean, if DeSantis gets in, we're really not at all far away from this whole thing getting resolved. Mm -hmm. If if DeSantis gets in. And he stays true to, his, true to his promise of removing the deep state, of basically firing every single one of these partisan fucking, you know, hacks, progressive Ivy League hacks that occupies and controls the budgets of these public-private partnerships. If he actually removes all those people and puts in base people, we're, we're you know, America will have survived. Right. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll look back at this and we'll say, oh, damn, that was kind of like McCarthyism, those commies. They almost took over. That was bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. well, America will make it and, we'll, you know, the, the Constitution will remain intact. Democracy will have actually worked. Right. If, if the guy can get like DeSantis can get in and actually wipes out this horrible, rotten group that has, is destroying everything. 
So I think that that's probably what's going to happen. Actually. Yeah. Being you, you have a good and amount of hope that in the, Well, I think, I think if we can get DeSantis in there, which I think there's a really good chance we can do, the, the you know, wave will break and will flow back the other direction. And, uh, you know, America will have had another close call. And, you know, we'll all look back at this time as a terrible time, but one that we made it through, right? I think, like, if I was a betting person, that's what I guess will happen. Um, but if... See, my, insisted, I my pushback on, on that would be, I don't know that you can get rid of the national security state without, you know, you, you, I don't know if someone like DeSantis can really do that because he's, you know, he's part of that system. He's, you know, these are kind of like, you know, some, his donors are more, um, people who are establishment types and like truly like, I think if to kind of bring America into an America first policy position with restricted immigration, with rolling back a lot of these civil rights laws, um, you would need uh, to purge the national security state. You would need to kind of like really can end the administrative state. You need to do a sort of very fast, very massive purge of all of these people and not to put yeah. that in a Fed posty way, just, you know, to fire them, to, uh, as, as Jarvin would put it, uh, permanently retire government employees. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, that would be a kind of something which would face incredible pushback. And um, I don't know that DeSantis is the guy who can do that, but uh, maybe he is. Maybe I, I hope he is. Because I think that's one of the reasons why they are investigating Trump now. One of the reasons why they, uh, you know, did whatever they did in 2020, which resulted in the election outcome that we, you know, are now honoring. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they realized that Trump posed an existential threat to their way of life. And yeah, I guess that's um, as I, such. Yeah, go on. Oh, go on, man. No, I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily pushback on what you're saying, Isaac. I just I, I have noted and I wonder, I'm curious what your take on this is. It doesn't seem like the mainstream really fears DeSantis. They will say bad things about him, especially with regard to sort of more social issues. But it seems like they don't re they don't view him as the same existential threat that they view Trump as. And, you know, maybe they don't know their own enemy. And he really could do um, the sort of best possible version of, of, of what you what you said he might. Um, but I haven't, you know, it, it does seem like there's a little bit of just like compared to Trump that they don't really fear him. And I, I wonder if that's meaningful. Exactly. And I, um, I can, you know, give an anecdote that describes this quite well. I was at a party recently with young uh, conservatives, young like a mix of more kind of base types and more uh, conservacons. And so I was talking to these conservacon types and they were like, oh, yeah, we, we love Ron DeSantis. And they're like, you know, Trump would be a disaster, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it's just clear to me that and then we got on to deeper issues and they, they are not on board with the, you know, more DR agenda, of course. And, and we're, you know, frankly, a little horrified by it. 
So, like, if this is the typical DeSantis supporter, then I don't know how much our goals will be achieved by a DeSantis uh, administration, but we'll see. So I believe DeSantis has said that he would do a purge, you know, uh, of the deep state. I think he's said that. Okay. Hasn't he? Yeah, so I, mean, I think he's very well. He may have. Yeah, so you know, I read there's a New Yorker. The New Yorker, of course, tried to do a hit piece on DeSantis, uh, you know, to get get out in front of it. Um, and it's actually a good piece. And I think it, you know, they try and get him on COVID bullshit, right? They're trying to be like, oh, more people died, which they didn't because of his policy. So that's what they're trying to like hang him up on. But it doesn't work yeah. at all. Instead, what it really that piece just shows in DeSantis is he's not super charismatic. He's an Ivy League guy, very understated, but very based and a total operator. So, and I think he has made this promise of this deep, deep state thing. So I think all the things you're saying about him um, not triggering the hysterical left, that's actually a strength. Get so triggered by Trump and try and put him in jail. Trump is just a triggering guy, right? I mean, most of the yeah. people with big opinions on Trump, <laughs> for sure. most, of the pe- most of the people with big opinions on Trump aren't responding to anything besides a visceral emotional reaction to the absolutely. way Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So DeSantis just isn't like that. Like, you look at the DeSantis talk, he's just not super triggering. He's just kind of, you know, he's kind of droll. And he says really base stuff, though. So I don't, I think actually DeSantis is very much our guy. Um, all that said, all these things you're saying about the, the backlash and the machinations of power and just the ability to even do this, I completely agree. I, I think that that's a massive risk. I'm not at all sure that DeSantis is the solution or that he even can get in without them figuring out some way to keep him out of there. Uh, so I don't know. You know, I, I really don't know. All I'm saying is I think that if DeSantis were to get in and if he were to keep true on his promise of generally making these horrible administrative state people pay, I think that yeah. we'd be in pretty good shape. as a Yeah. Country. Well, one thing I've, I've been saying recently, I'm a little bit politically black filled and, you know, that comes and goes. Uh, but I would love to be wrong. And I think that, you know, you've made a good a good case that, you know, Ron DeS- for, for Ron DeSantis today, like. Uh, yeah, you know, my, my whole point is like, oh, they, they seem not to fear DeSantis by doing so much against Trump as they've been doing recently with Mar-a-Lago, et cetera. It's almost like, it's almost like they want DeSantis to get in, but that's probably to give them too much credit. I don't think they're actually playing that level of 40 chess. I think you're probably right that it is just this visceral reaction to Trump. Yes, they view him as an existential threat. But it's not so much that they view him, maybe it's not so much that they view him so much more as an existential threat than DeSantis as that they just really hate him and they hate him for the, as Bab kind of has pointed out, like they hate him for how he's humiliated them, which for as, and I do think DeSantis is substantially right wing, but he hasn't yet anyway sort of um, kept them up at night in the way that Trump did. And, And yeah, maybe this is all much more gut level uh, below the belt punching than it is 4D chess to topple, you know, the American demographic. Yeah. 
I, I, I mean, who knows? You know, this is, I, we're always going back and forth on this. It's, it's sometimes, you know, I, I totally agree with Bob where I'm like, these people are just actually very kind of mediocre, embarrassed people who aren't really very good at much. They can't really get people into their candidates. They can't really, you know, they're, everything is focus grouped and it just doesn't work. And then a guy like Trump comes along and does everything they want to do. He stands for the common people. He does it on pure charisma. He's everything that they want to be. And they are just so mad about it. You know, yeah. they just can't believe that all their, their, all their Ivy League degrees, all doing the right thing, all, all the things they've done correct. And this guy who works, you know, four hours a day comes along and just completely, you know, just by sheer force of will, completely yeah. destroys them all. You know, and, and, and not only that, represents the common man. Which is really, you know, since they're a communist in their soul, that's what they want. So, yeah. uh, well, you know, I think I, crucially, I, that, could, that could be it. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, no, I All was, was going to say crucially. Is, oh, go, go on, I'm sorry, Isaac. Shouldn't be cutting in. Uh, sorry, sorry. Let, let me just, like, say the end of the point. The, I, yeah. I, all I was trying to say is either, either it's that and we're pretty much in good shape because they suck. Or then sometimes something happens where I think... They're, they are playing like 7D chess and they really have a plan that is just impenetrable and there's just no way to like get free of this. So, you know, I kind of go back and forth. Sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. Go ahead. So crucially, I think what really distinguished Trump is that he, unlike any, any of the other candidates in 2016, was offering uh, policy positions that spoke to uh, the... Uh, well, there are many words for him, but the uh, the Americaner, and yeah. um, that is a demographic that had, by the Republican Party, been uh, systemically ignored <laughs> and uh, even denigrated. And so, um, you know, he Trump pursued um, people. Have I'm sure he didn't consciously know he was doing it, uh, but he pursued the quote unquote sailor strategy. And uh, guess what? It works because, you know, certain people united by certain uh, details about their lives and themselves Mm -hmm. will feel they have common interests because they do. And um, yeah, so that was something he injected into American politics that I think the establishment, the Republican and certainly the Democratic establishment want to roll back as much as they can. They want to, you know, <laughs> they want to put the, uh, the the genie back in the bottle, but uh, that's not happening. Right. And so, I think to one that's one of the reasons that um, Trump represents such a a threat to to that regime. But also, yeah, as you said, as you see, uh, DeSantis, yeah, he's speaking that language too now. And Blake Masters certainly is. And um, I I don't think the genie can go back in the bottle. And I think eventually we're going to find a, um, you know, a leader who is, um, you know, doesn't uh, trigger the disgust, you know, whatever in the minds of independent voters that Trump does. And then we'll be in business. And I think, um, yeah, I, I agree. And I'll, I'll say that I'm not trying to anything I've said, you know, 
about having my doubts that DeSantis is as based as we hope. Um, I, he's a great political candidate. He's young. He's very sort of masculine in his demeanor. Um, he would be an excellent foil, whether it's Biden or whatever other person they try and slip through the cracks, Kamala, whatever. He would be an excellent foil. And I, I mean, I really think he could win in 2024. And I, and I, and I like him a lot. And uh, no, I mean, I think there is there is a potential white pill there. I just I do wonder sort of what the what what, what the bigger picture of like where this is all heading um, and whether or not he would be just kind of more of a populist salve on a bigger problem, but not wouldn't necessarily eradicate the problem. That being said, I'm not someone who thinks that Trump would would necessarily save the day either. Um, I think that right now he represents the kind of the hottest red sort of flame of, of populist rage and therefore, you know, in some way a more fearsome force than DeSantis. But I'm not necessarily saying that like that there's a clear path to victory of Trump or president either. Yeah. Right. No, I... So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure, but, <laughs> but no, there's, um, different dynamics of player Isaac I know you are probably arriving in Chicago pretty soon so I don't know if we should should wrap up but I can definitely keep going no we uh, yeah let's keep going I've, I've got like maybe 20 20 minutes or so okay great. Oh, cool yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this well uh just to kind of tap out some notes here that I'd taken that sort of brings both segments of this conversation together you know the the feasibility or lack thereof of any kind of localized or national civil war, but also dynamics with Trump, et cetera. One thing that's been, uh, I don't black pill is a strong word, but one thing that I, you know, I've been noticing recently in headlines is this notion that the general public, you know, normies, so to speak. So not, sorry, I don't know if you guys can hear that Trump in the background. So not necessarily like the, you know, the, the blue elites and not necessarily like the, you know, the Americana or like deep reds, like, like Isaac, you were describing the bar earlier, but just your average normie people who are, you know, somewhere between independent voters and, and any of the bigger blocks than that seems like they are there. And I guess they've always been, but maybe even more so now are turned off by Trump, the stuff with Mar-a-Lago, uh, like, you know, you, you hear, I think people like BAP and others on the sort of dissident right have talked about this, you know, your average, especially just like white American views, uh, you know, if you're in trouble with the law, you probably deserve it. Like that's a bit, which, um, you know, people from, you know, the East block, et cetera, don't view it that way, but your average American, you know, basically thinks that if you're, if you're on trial, if you're arrested, you probably deserve it at least a bit. And it seems like that perception is carrying through with Trump. And, and by the way, I, I really don't know that much about the case. He may well, have done things that were illegal and, and they probably were avoidable, which is somewhat depressing. But anyway, um, it, it does seem like, and so what I'm dancing around here is that independent voters are, are, are shifting away from not only from Trump, but from the GOP in general, heading towards the midterm. Again, this is the mainstream media narrative. Maybe it's exaggerated, but very much it's like the headlines have been that, you know, Trump's perception is kind of going down. Uh, and people are shifting away from the GOP due to recent headlines on Trump. Uh, this this sort of, again, black is a strong word, but this gives me, this makes me nervous heading into the midterm. So I'm curious to kind of for both of your thoughts on that. Um, and then I kind of had a structural yeah. point. Of it. I'll, let's start with that. I mean, and it, 
Do you think this mainstream media narrative about voters drifting away from the GOP is exaggerated or, or, or just about these dynamics in general? I mean, I don't, I don't know a single person who is like sitting around not having an opinion on Trump that isn't already 100% baked one way or the other. Like yeah. what voter out there is like, oh, I'm, I'm not really quite sure how I feel about Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like it's like either, you, either you're going to vote for him or not. That's pretty much it. I don't think there's anyone out there that's still making up their mind. Because, you know, if you're someone who would vote for Trump, you obviously see this as a political attack, which it is. And if you see, you know, Hillary had private servers. She never got arrested. Right? It's the same fucking thing. Yeah, I think it's stupid either way. I mean, I thought it was stupid with Hillary's servers, too, to be honest. I didn't give a shit about her servers. You know, like, who cares? So, uh, you know, I don't think there's anybody out there who's still making their mind up about Trump. So if the media is trying to tell us that, oh, people are, you know, they're not sure. You know, the FBI, he must be doing something wrong. I think that that's very much wishful thinking. It's very untrue. I mean, have you ever heard of anybody like in today's world being like, oh, you know what? <laughs> I really wasn't sure until the FBI raided <laughs> his house. I mean, like, I, does, does that person exist? Maybe. I, I yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't yeah, know anyone no, like I, that, but I part of me wonders if, yes, I don't know. You never know with normies, but yeah. I think you're generally right, Isaac. I think that, uh, yeah, everything with Trump, everything, both sides are really baked in 100% at this point. One interesting thing that came up after the FBI raid is both from the left and from the right, uh, at least from the conservacon right, there was the sense of like, well, let's let's wait, let's see what they have. Let's, you know, and oh boy, if they overstepped, they're going to be in trouble because that will disgrace their credibility. <laughs> and it's just it's this fundamental uh, misapprehension. And I, I'm a lawyer, you're a lawyer. So I think like maybe we have additional insight into this. It's a misapprehension of the judicial system, the justice system, and uh, how it is applied to people in America, uh, depending on their level of, um, the level of interest the regime has in prosecuting them. So like if I'm Joe Schmo, and I shoplift something in San Francisco, I'm not even going to be prosecuted because they've made a policy decision not to prosecute me. So like that, that's one level. If I'm like um, Dan Baltic and I'm embezzling money, like, yeah, I'm going to get prosecuted, but like no one's going to go like balls to the wall to make sure that I, you know, go to prison forever. I'll have like, or, you know, maybe I'll have a zealous prosecutor, but like in general, I'll have the opportunity to present my defense. I'll have to the extent that I could get a fair shake in court. And it's probably to a very good extent because I could afford good attorneys. Um, I, I would have, uh, you know, a fair shake. But that, those instances of, uh, you know, pr- legal processes of, uh, you know, events in the legal system are very, very different from the situation where you are standing in between the regime and what it wants. And if you find yourself in that position, 
there's nothing on earth that will save you. The, you know, obviously, you know, law is kind of like at a certain level, you know, they can find laws to indict you for anything. They can like at the, with, you know, especially post 9-11 with all this terrorism stuff. If the government wants to, you know, uh, put you in forever prison, they will put you in forever prison. The government wants to do more than that. If the government wants to do more than that, they'll do that. And this is this is not even something that is debated. Like everyone knows that there are CIA wet teams. Everyone knows that uh, these things have and do happen. Like, um, like for instance, that interview with Chuck Schumer. Where he goes, yeah. If I were a president, I I wouldn't be picking a fight with the FBI. Or like an even better. Here's like a, an even more kind of concrete example. I remember reading an old interview with um, uh, who's that neocon and uh, Bolton, John Bolton, and he was um, he was talking to the interviewer, and he had some type of dispute with an ambassador from some other country from, I, I think it was a Colombian ambassador. And he like, this was a, you know, this was from a New Yorker reporter, I think. So it's, you know, it's not him saying it to the reporter, but it's the reporter reporting what he heard. Uh, Bolton, you know, a senior member of the United States government told this ambassador, oh, we know where your kids go to school. And like, yeah, at the senior level of, you know, um, of operations in the, you know, in regime operations, that is how disputes are settled. And that is something that I think the normie doesn't quite understand. They think like, well, due process goes up to the very top. And that's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really insightful point, Dan. Um, and it's true. Like maybe you and I are kind of jaded because we went to law school and have experience with the legal system. So we know what you're saying, that prosecutorial decisions are really the, you know, you can prosecute anybody with, with any severity that you want. And so that's something that you're right. Like maybe the normal normie is out there thinking it's black and white. Like, well, oh, if you committed a crime, then you will be prosecuted for it. Where it's like, no, it's entirely based on what they want to prosecute. And yeah, or we're not even thought, prosecute, right? <laughs> yeah, we're not prosecute. So, so like uh, another place you saw this recently is the like somebody like me was really freaked out about the IRS, the new eighty-three billion dollars, right. oh, yeah, that's eighty-five thousand yeah, yeah, or whatever yeah. IRS people. So somebody like me is like, oh, that just means they're gonna find more shit to prosecute, right? They're gonna find more little yeah. things, reasons to audit whoever they want. Whereas I had a lot of friends that were just like, I don't get it. Why is this bad? Like, it only matters if you did something wrong. And I'm like, dude, oh, yeah. everyone does something wrong on their taxes. Everybody does some small thing wrong. The tax code is 1,200 pages long. Yeah, and the more you know, yeah, and, and yeah. half of them. Thank you for bringing that up. That's <laughs> right. and along with Mar-a-Lago and the dark Brandon speech, that's the other key detail of, you know, Democrats solidifying their power. Because, yeah, as you say, you know, they can go after anyone, but also they, it especially targets exactly the conservative sort of Americana demographic, um, the, you know, independent businesses, the middle class. Um, these are the people who are most susceptible um, to that. Absolutely. 
Right. Well, and, and that's where it seems like this is going to come out of, even though they're saying it's not. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they do go after. I mean, they already did it once, right? They went after IRS, like, targeted conservative 501c3s. I'm sure they're going to do that again. Yeah, no, so that's... And, and, uh, and all the people they're hiring are going to be woke-based, you know, diversity hires. So, uh, yeah. who's, you know, as they say, your paycheck, never understand something that your paycheck depends on you not understanding. You know, they're, they're all going to be on board with it because that's why they're there. So I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point, uh, for sure. Yeah. So it's, um, power is, uh, lies in the, the hand that wields it. So. And ex- that's exactly the source of, again, don't want to call it a black belt. I don't, I don't think actually it's hopeless. It's just, uh, that that's, what's kind of scary and ugly about these times is that kind of solidification, solidification of power. But again, I, I will allow kind of what we've discussed, like, yes, there, there could be political, if not solutions and at least salves going forward. And, uh, I guess we have to put our hopes in those one, one sort of another thing coming out of these articles I've, I've read recently about sort of the shifting, supposedly shifting tide of independence so, uh, away from the GOP towards the Dems. Um, some some of these articles will sort of talk about this the structure of 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 the voter base in this country. And I, one that I found interesting, I, I don't have this statistic at my fingertips, but it, it rings true in my you know experience is that uh, about as many as three in ten Americans are 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 thought to be like Trump diehards, and then the rat, and then like you know obviously however many are, are extremely anti-Trump, and then there's like some kind of more GOP leaning people who are like skeptical of Trump or whatever, but that kind of strikes me as an interesting sort of structural reflection. If you want to talk about is there going to be a war or not, I think that there's a what the dynamic of the country right now is is that there is a about yeah probably I'd estimate about three and ten. Other people on our side would estimate more. Uh, Americans are just extremely against the kind of progressive mainstream. They're they they view Trump as their guy, and they're angry enough. I think. For a war, but they're they're outnumbered, you know, basically seven to three or so, um, and therefore that's why I don't think it's ever really going to turn into to anything beyond a January six or a Chaz type thing, or maybe a trucker convoy type situation, is because of that fundamental. Like I don't know if the numbers are actually as much on Trump's side as a lot of people hoped after twenty sixteen. I guess that's not really a question. Uh, I'm just curious for your guys' take on that. Like, do you think that is an underball of the number of people who are uh, <laughs> Trump diehards or what? So what's the exact question? Well, so supposing that about three in 10 Americans are, are Trump diehards, um, like, or how, to, how to phrase this? Um, I kind of have the sense that, you know, a, almost like a plurality, not quite a plurality, but like there's there's more people who are who who are diehards for Trump than any other one political candidate or cause in the country. But they're still overall outnumbered. I don't know. Do you think that's a uh, and and I think it, not to add something that's not there in your take, but I think it is that this uh, three in ten they uh, though are a diehard minority possibly prevent the formation of a red uh, majority because the other reds are um, some some of them are just so viscerally turned off by Trump 
that they side with um, Biden or they side with whoever the, the Dems are running. Yeah. So um, I guess, yeah, that's I the, think that's that Yeah. And that like heading towards November, that you're that's going to be the dynamic. Matt. Yeah. Yeah. What were you saying, Dan? Um, yep. Well, my... Oh, do you, oh um, Isaac, what's uh, what's your take on that? No, no, go, no, go go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. All right. So, uh, yeah, my take on that is, yeah, I think it's right. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, um, you know, I think we see a lot of stuff we like in him. Many people who are conservative, who would support. I can't tell you how many people are like, yeah, I'd support a DeSantis. I'd support a Blake Masters. And when Blake Masters is serving redder meat than Trump, and they'll support him because, you know, he cuts a cleaner figure. He's less, you know, um, he, he doesn't have these kind of downscale associations that the more upscale, you know, suburb people don't want to be like, oh, I'm, I'm with that guy who the Hicks are with or whatever. Yeah. And that's an unfortunate situation. But I think it is perhaps the situation that we we find ourselves in but um that being said i don't think this is a black bill because you know if it's not desantis if it's not blake masters there is tremendous energy in this area eventually the right leader to coalesce behind will arise and also and this is something that um we haven't touched on yet but this kind of supposition that uh, we're entering a period of the the long blue winter. I don't think that's true okay. necessarily. I think it's actually very precarious because the blue, the GAE coalition relies upon uh, basically all Hispanics and all blacks buying into the GAE agenda. And I don't know, like, uh, I think we, we both know a lot of Hispanic guys, a lot of black guys, or maybe not a lot, but a few, <laughs> like, they're not particularly into GAE. And <laughs> I think, like, they would actually be very easy to pick off by a civic nationalist president who, the, the crucial thing is, like, they have the sense that, like, they have, I think, the correct sense that the Dems are going to get them the Gibbs. And the thing is, you need to have a um, a, a red president, a you know, a based populist, nationalist, whatever, who is going to reassure culturally conservative Hispanic and Black voters that, like, yeah, we're not going to go uh, hyper libertarian and you know, um, not have a, a good social welfare system. And like, because they rely on this, they rely on social welfare. And, and frankly, I think, you know, I think we're all, we're all kind of agreed that that era of Republican politics, which is heavily libertarian, that needs to, we need to jettison that because the Republican party represents downscale whites and hopefully downscale uh, or, you know, or midscale or whatever, um, Hispanics and blacks going forward and, and Asians, of course. So um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, that is actually the the message, the cultural, culturally conservative, somewhat economically um, left uh, position. That's a winning position, and that's something that people yeah. kind of dismiss. That's something that people are like, "Oh, well, that'll never happen." 
But okay, that's I, it. Doesn't make sense why that would never happen. But if it did, GAE is done. It's just done. So um, yeah, I mean they they need they need a plurality. They need a majority of the country to vote for them. And if they lose that, they can't. You can cheat, but you need to be cheating within a margin of closeness. If they right, really right, right. lose blacks and Hispanics in a big way, they're toast. Yeah, I think that that's really insightful and and true. I think that you're right. Exactly what you're saying is correct about that men, those populations really do rely on that stuff. So if they get the fear that they're not going to get some of those things, then that's not good. So I think you yeah. message it two ways. I, I actually think you put that secondary, though. I think what you message is, because you don't want to lose the spice and the trueness of the right-wing message mm -hmm. that I think those populations actually do respond to, which is exactly. saying, okay, you're, you're, you're getting the gives me that, but is it good for you? No. And it obviously isn't. Because the black community yeah. is far worse now than it was in far more libertarian times. It's, you know, the, I think, what do they say? The black uh, rate of out of wedlock birth is like 70%. Before the Civil Rights Act, it was like 20%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <clears throat> I don't think that, I think serious leaders in the black community who aren't grifters uh, have to admit that all of this, stuff that you're getting is not helping. It's not helping the community. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Hispanic leaders can say the same thing. So I think you have to um, message that and then also message maybe secondarily the point where like, look, if you're, if you're really relying on these things, we're not going to take them away. And, and I think you're, that's a really great point you're making that uh, a little bit of the more soft economic left rhetoric is needed because right now, suddenly we represent the white underclass who also relies on exactly. the program. So I think you're, uh, I think that that's really smart. I mean, I've always said like, I'm a hundred percent pro single payer health. Um, you know, that would yeah. totally destroy so many of the pharma companies and just be so much better for everybody. But, um, Absolutely. with regard to, to the other points you're making in terms of, is it three out of 10, et, et cetera? I think, um, so I have, I can count, three Ivy League friends and two other friends that I know, all of whom are moderate, smart guys who all say I would never vote for Trump. Yeah. They've made that decision in their head and they simply will never do it. And these are all very smart people, you know, smart voters who just, they take one look at Trump and they're like, absolutely not. They're just, they don't believe in it. It's gross. It's a circus. It's TV land. It's idiocracy. So they just cannot support it. Yeah. All of those people are pro DeSantis. All of those people have said outwardly, I, oh, I would totally vote for DeSantis. So that's really, again, going back to the uh, subjective versus objective um, rhetoric or, or not rhetoric, but journalism, whatever. That's really all I can say. So my thought is DeSantis is a great candidate because it's sweeping in all those people who just cannot. Trump is just not palatable enough for them. So I think the Blake Masters and the DeSantis people maybe could appeal to those people and sweep them in. Yeah. yeah. No, um, they tend, tend to agree. Agreed. I guess that's the hope. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully... You, before I go, did you want to... 
he delivers. Yeah. What were you saying, Isaac? Yeah. Do you want to just touch on uh, last thing, Dark Brandon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, aesthetically, yeah. et cetera. I mean, what is there to say? I, I'm sure you as a Brandon guy have some thoughts. Well, so this I say all the time. Um, the thing that you have to remember about what the Biden administration is, is it's a bunch of Harvard grads who are fueled on Adderall, and they're basically running it like a writer's room in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, a bunch of these guys sit around, they read all day, they work 14 hours a day, they're, you know, they're known for doing this. They go to you know, gay, uh, non-binary orgies at night. I know some of these people. I know, I know this, is uh-huh. this is what that guy was talking to, the wheelchair guy, who then you know, he mentioned this, and then he got totally destroyed because both sides are like this. Both sides are dominated by these kind of power-hungry hedonists who uh, just, you know, even the Trump people who do a ton of coke and do a bunch of drugs and, and really work hard, play hard. They're kind of like banker type power people, like Roger Stone type people, right? Yeah. So the, uh, uh, the Shake Shack perverts. <laughs> right. I don't know what they, <laughs> so these people run their lives in a certain way. They, they have accepted the Saul Alinsky uh, way of being. And even, even the most, some of the most base people, you know, are obsessed with Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky was a political strategist who, basically took the rails off of political maneuvering and propaganda. And he set out these rules. You know, Hillary Clinton wrote her whole treatise on Saul Alinsky. He basically has these very complicated rules of how to create propaganda that embarrasses and undermines your opponent, right? Mm -hmm. Once you read it, you understand that pretty much all the people in D.C. are doing is sitting around in these writers' rooms finding out ways to like back and forth on this, right? Yeah. And they're all reading the same stuff we're reading. They're, they're all reading Bronze Age Rover. They know about Dark Maga. They know about Masters. They know about these guys. So they're all in the same mind space as we are. Um, it's, so that photo op of, of uh, Biden that was shared by a lot of people on our side that's supposedly supposed to make him look bad that was completely manufactured by them, mm-hmm. in, in my view. I don't know. If, I don't know that, but they're manufacturing oh, yeah. that means Clearly. because, and they, they have the you know the Marines behind them. They want to yeah. somebody inside of that writers' room is like, oh, let's let's show them who's boss. Exactly. You know, let's yeah. show them who's really in control. So <laughs> that's yeah. what that whole uh, line of messaging is. Also, <clears throat> Bronze Age Perfect said something with typically genius of him, which was, what happened with Trump. What happened with uh, some of these other things that, that all kind of went in concurrence right in a row? Oh, what happened with Dugan's daughter? Oh, yeah. They were planning, they were planning for this period, you know, September or August of this year, for whatever reasons, probably before the midterms, to make it their end of Godfather moment. <laughs> so yeah. Great. yeah. And what he, what, what, he, yeah, what he means by that is, you know, in the end of the Godfather, there's this moment where all the all the enemies of Don Corleone uh, get fucked at once. They all get killed. Like he like wipes the plate with all the people that have been uh, hurting him. He like kills them all in one. Right. Yeah. And the scene, Alex so Jones, Sandy Hook thing, part and parcel. Go on. Yes, exactly. So the, there's uh, been like the a day scene. where we take yeah. care of all family business. I love yeah. that line. Yeah, it, exactly. It's the day. It's the family business. All the business is canceled today. I think they really did have this period uh, that was designed to be that. They were like, we're going to 
you know, it's going to all come at once. They've been planning all these little things at once, right? Mm -hmm. And they think, oh, and then we're going to have the dark branded image and show them that, oh, we, it's ours. This country's ours. And all these, you know, they are so terrified of Trump supporters. You know, their, their whole dance is the fact that Trump, Trump supporters are living in their minds at all times. And the reason Trump supporters are living in their minds at all times is because, again, these people think they're progressive. They have a project of helping the little guy. So Trump supporters remind them constantly that, in fact, they do not stand for the little guy. So it drives them insane. They go crazy. Mm. And uh, I think that that's kind of what Dark Brandon is, is this punctuation point at the end of this series of big Biden wins. And that's probably also um, what you're seeing in terms of the these fake news stories about how, oh, the arrest really changed people's minds. And, you know, it's not going to be a red wave, et cetera. I think this is all a coordinated PR effort uh, that was kind of designed and built to occur at this time. So I don't think there's any really any dark Brandon besides these dorks, you know, in D.C. who are communicating basically with us. Right. I mean, they're all reading American Minds. These guys are all, you know, they, they they know that what we have is so much more um, authentically. Um, there's more energy. Yeah. Charismatic. More energy. Yeah, they, it's real. It's real, right? Everything about Trump is real. Everything they do is fake. You know, they put in somebody like Kamala Harris, she gets three per three percent poll because she's just she just doesn't have it. You know, so I think that uh, Dark Brandon is them like it's kind of their tongue. They're like, oh. Look at us, like we know what you're doing, and and uh, <laughs> you should be afraid. And that's why I said on Twitter, I was like, you just don't pay attention. Don't share yeah. this image as if, oh, I'm gonna share this image to show you that oh, Biden's scary. It's like you idiot. You really think they didn't think this out? Like they they obviously thought out putting the lights there and the army guys behind them at this exact time. Well, which, you know, like how could which you is really why think it's they're hilarious. that dumb? They're not that dumb. Right, Which is yeah. why they, they literally are just, you know, they publicly copied our meme. And it just it just shows that they don't have the capacity to uh, to meme. They don't have the capacity to, to generate good propaganda. And this is maybe going out a bit on a limb, but I think the reason why is um, they're mostly women. And the right, the DR is mostly men. And... You know, women are just not really good at um, propaganda. They're, <laughs> they're not good at, you know, kind of like uh, doing, creating like images that kind of like speak to the heart and soul of men and, and of women because they've never had to do that evolutionarily. Women just, yeah. you know, men approach them. They don't have to think about like, what do I have to say? What do I have to do to affect a change well, in my environment absolutely because this is a, yeah, go on. women Holy. are not formed biologically to do that and so if you have a movement that is governed by women and matriarchal it's going to have the lamest shit imaginable as it's propaganda as it does this resistance stuff it's fucking terrible it's just like you know it's it's flop i'm thinking Whereas, about the like, new hillary clinton apple plus docuseries gutsy um, yeah, oh, you got to yeah. check it out. I haven't watched it in one. I don't think it's necessary to actually watch to know exactly what it's going to be like. It's basically like a feminist docuseries. They interview people like Megan the Stallion and other and others. It's her. And her oh, daughter. Yes. 
even the you know the the I think fair to say left-leaning Hollywood Reporter and Variety, even they gave it a pretty lukewarm review. They're like, this is not that interesting. This is pretty tepid. <laughs> and I, I saw these headlines, uh, you know, I was looking at reviews of things and the thing like, I can't, I can't believe how aesthetically retarded Hillary Clinton is. I mean, after a career in politics, you'd think, you'd think that she would pick up on something of how to actually communicate with people or at least say something remotely titillating. You know, if she were just to be like the more, you know, twisted version of herself, it would be more interesting than creating something called gutsy and kind of, you know, making this tepid moral point about women or whatever. Um, but that, of, of course, it's actually not at all surprising that someone who spent their career in politics is aesthetically retarded. That's the norm. I'm just coming from a post-Trump perspective where I actually expect politicians uh, to have some aesthetic sensibility or some real charisma. But as, as you were kind of saying, Dan, the left really doesn't have that. You know, whatever the gender yeah. issue is, uh, I, yeah, basically that, that realm of the left, Biden, Clinton, it's all geriatric, very, uh, what's, what's the word, you know, feminized, not, well, not. Yeah, it's, Really it's not masculine it. yeah. energy. It's not young energy. And that's what we have. So, I mean, ultimately, that's a bit of a white pill, I think. I think you so know, too. I think yeah. the party with the energy that historically has been the energy used to conquer, <laughs> that's probably the party that has uh, more of a future than the party that has this kind of moribund longhouse energy. But uh, uh, I, agree. I, mean, I think it's. I think it's a long, hard road. I think there is this solidification of power, but I do, and I'm not just saying this to end on a positive note, I do think the energy remains on our side. It's just that we are flanked, I guess, is my overall uh, maybe conclusion based on all this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh. Well, oh, uh, before cool, we do guys. close... How about uh, the carousel? What's coming up next? I yeah, think. I was going to ask, guys, if you want to close out anything else you're doing beyond your sure. excellent Montana piece you want to you know, promote before we close out. Yeah, so I just finished up this four-part series on advertising that was uh, originally supposed to be in Palladium, but I pulled it from them because they were saying weird stuff and are actually sponsored by the WEF, literally. Um, and I, I have a piece uh, that I'm really excited about that's very gonzo uh, about ketamine that's coming out. Oh, yeah, you were telling me. Today. I think that's coming out today in Raw Holy shit. National yeah, I gotta read that. Man's World. Oh, great. So, yeah, that's in there somewhere. Yeah, and I'll, I'll republish it on Substack. Um, he's awesome, Raeg. And so I'm really excited about that. So that should be published on my Substack probably early next week, and you can find it in wherever uh, man's world is. And awesome. um, yeah, that's pretty much it. And then from there, just having, to, Oh, I have a good podcast coming out about the founding of um, Dungeons and Dragons huh. actually. Oh, cool. Cause I talked to a games guy about that for some reason. So again, I'm trying to shift the podcast also to be more gonzo stories. I like just about like the world and totally being super political. So um, yeah, that's what's yeah. coming up for me. And you have been on Astral's pod recently. Everyone should check that out. Uh, well, actually, he was on mine, and then oh, I, okay. I, I, well, I was also on his. So his is coming out soon. So that should be out. I don't know when he's going to publish it, but that'll be out soon. 
Excellent. You're uh, you're making moves, that. Isaac. We like it. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, um, doing it while driving and everything. Uh, we really appreciate it. No, thanks, I love Isaac. talking to you guys. Your, yours is, uh, you know, as I always say, the most listenable, listenable podcast in our entire sphere. Uh -huh. I always go straight to listen uh -huh. to new episodes. So I really love it. Thank and you, uh, thanks so much for having me again. I appreciate it. We appreciate thanks it. for coming well, on. Enjoy the rest of your travels and we'll talk soon.